Well, we are returning to our uh, series in Philippians. So I invite you to turn there with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off. Philippians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse uh, 19. We'll read 19 through 24. This uh, uh, Paul talking about his uh, disciple, his student Timothy. And we'll, we'll consider what God has to say uh, through this passage. So Timoth- uh, Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 19 through 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that, I'm, uh, that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, but they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also." Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we pray that you would now bless the reading and preaching of your word. May every word that I say be in in accordance with your word, and may you receive all the glory from them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're returning to our series in Philippians. Uh, By way of introduction this morning, let me remind you of what Paul's main proposition, what his big idea was, what his main thesis was is in this letter, his main point, and that is that we are to live worthy of the gospel. That is what he wanted the church in Philippi to know, and and through the Spirit-inspired words, he wants us to all know that as well, that we would live in a manner worthy of our status as citizens of the gospel, and we know that we don't achieve that status, we don't achieve that status by our living, by our works, that's the free gift of God, we are justified and saved by faith alone, and in Christ alone, given his righteousness. But because that's true, because of what Christ has done, because we are granted this status as sons and daughters of God, now, here's how we we live. Here's how we live in, in response to what he's done. Here's how we live a life of gratitude for all that he has done. And the reason why is because of Christ himself. And Paul gives us that supreme example of what Christ has done and that Christ, and we, we used it as the confession of faith uh, this morning, earlier in our service, uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Those, those verses sometimes referred to as the Christ hymn because uh, it's, it's considered, it's, it's probable that this was an early Christian hymn that was developed in the church. And Paul uses this as a perfect example of what, of what Christ has done, what the Son of God accomplished through his incarnation, through his hum- humiliation, uh, his obedience unto death, uh, his, his uh, uh, death on the cross, and then ultimately his exaltation and his resurrection on the third day. So this is Paul's supreme example. But he also wants to give another example in this letter that points back to what Christ has done. And we're going to look at the first of these examples today. He, he has a few of them in this letter. This first example is, is Timothy, his, his disciple. In the next section, next week, we'll consider Epaphroditus, who was a member of the church, and, and Paul's going to put him forward as an example of Christ as well. And Paul himself, he'll put himself forward as an example later in the letter that we'll see. But uh, for this morning, we're going to look at uh, the example of Timothy. 
And Paul puts him forward as an example of Christ's humility. We saw how Christ, he took on flesh and he, he humbled himself. He, he was humble, he was willing and obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. And, and it's obvious then for, for us, for Christians, that we ought to be humble. But it's less obvious and it's more difficult. It's one of those easier said than done kind of things. It's more difficult to understand how we can do that or, or how we can cultivate humility or what that actually looks like. That's why we also, or we, we always, rather we always must consider Christ's example. That always must be on the forefront of our minds. But by extension, we have these wonderful scriptural examples of other men and women who have have modeled that for us. And that's what Timothy helps us to see this morning. We see from our text that, that Paul's explicit concern in sending Timothy to them was is he wants to get some more information about how they're doing and to encourage them uh, through Timothy's presence. But the other reason, the reason behind this is Paul really wants Timothy to be with them because he's the, the perfect, perfect model and example of the kind of humility that he desires this church to have. Consider Timothy, Paul, Paul says. I, I have no one else like him because he, more than anyone else on my team, he models Christ-like humility and genuine concern for others. So that's what we want to do today. We want to consider Timothy's example of Christ-like humility. And from this example, we'll see three different aspects that will make true humility more, more concrete for us. There's, there's three things that come out of this passage that, that help us uh, in our own pursuit of, of Christ-like humility. And so the first thing we see from Timothy's example is that humility looks like seeking the interests of Christ and his church. Humility is seeking the interests of Christ and his church. When Paul is describing Timothy, he says that Timothy is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the church, while these, these other unnamed Others, these are the ones, and we saw them earlier in the letter as well, who are concerned about their own interests. They're preaching Christ from false motives. They're concerned with getting a, a leg up, uh, one-upping Paul, seeing him brought down. Not so with Timothy. And so notice the implications of the text. To be concerned for the interests of Jesus Christ is to be concerned about the welfare of the church. Jesus is interested in the well-being of his body. The, the bridegroom, he, of course, that makes sense. He, he's concerned. He has a, a very uh, a deep and uh, very uh, important uh, uh, interest in the well-being of his bride. And so if we're truly seeking Christ's interests, we'll necessarily be seeking the interests of his church. Another way to, to say this is, if you're not invested in the well-being of the local church, then, then chances are that you're not truly invested in following Christ. It's a very unpopular way to talk about it these days. And unfortunately, it's a very uh, it's a, a widespread growing opinion, especially in America, especially in our individualized uh, context and our broadly evangelical church, that we can have Jesus apart from the church. And that's simply just not so. I can uh, think of, of, there's two, two anecdotes, two, uh, two stories come to mind right away when I think about this. Two different people I, I've met over the years, and they've expressed different reasons why they were, they were not done with Jesus. 
They're saying, I'm, I'm not done with Jesus, but I am done with the church. They've been hurt in some way, or they've, they've not received the love that they needed, or they disagreed with some kind of teaching. And I'm not even, I don't want to discredit all those situations. And in one of those cases, I think that person had a, a good reason to be upset. And we can be honest with that. The church does mess up, to say the least, uh, a lot of times. But we have to pause and make sure that we understand what we're saying and what they're saying when they say this. Can you really be all in for Jesus but disregard his church that he lived and died for, that he loves, that he promises to build? See, humility, it recognizes that it's not just me and Jesus. That's a really important thing. It's not just me and Jesus, but Jesus has called me to serve his people. And that's true of all of us in in some respect, in some way, one way or another. And that's why Paul says earlier in in, uh, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And that is what Timothy did. He was humble. He did not consider his own interests, but he was completely devoted to the interests of Christ and to the interests of this church that he was called to minister to there in Philippi. Consider just just one aspect with me of of Timothy's selflessness as he cares for this this church here. Uh, It's most likely we've seen how, how Paul is writing this letter from Rome in his imprisonment. We've seen that already. And in verse 19, he tells the Philippians that his, his plan is to send Timothy to them. And then Timothy is going to gather news and bring news back to Paul in Rome. So Paul's getting ready to send Timothy on this round trip. And that might not sound so bad for us. Uh, I, I looked it up. It's about an eight-hour flight. You can take a flight from Philippi to Rome. It's not, not too bad. And uh, I'm by no means a history buff either, but I'm also fairly certain that there weren't planes back then in the first century. So what would this trip have entailed for Timothy in the year 62 or so? What would that have looked like? Uh, Pastor Dennis Johnson, he, he summarizes this grueling journey that laid before Timothy uh, very well. He, he says that the most direct route uh, would be overland from Rome on the Appian Way, major highway, major road, to Brindisi on Italy's southeast coast. That's over 350 miles. Then a voyage across the Adriatic Sea, about 90 miles, would bring him to Dyrrachium, the western terminus of the Ignatian Way. Then he would make a 360-mile trek eastward on the Ignatian Way across Macedonia to Philippi in order to bring news from Paul to Philippi and from Philippi back to Paul. Timothy would invest weeks in order to make this arduous and dangerous trip over land and sea. But Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who him, he himself did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to for personal gain. And Timothy had that mind. He did not count himself greater than a 1,600-mile round trip if it meant serving the church of his Lord and his Savior. Why was Timothy willing to do this? It's because he had the mind of Christ, that same Christ who did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto for personal gain. That's what 
he means there as he, he emptied himself. He, he did not consider that glory that he had with the Father of any personal value to himself. He willingly took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men who had no beauty that we should behold him or recognize him or, or any tribute given to him. He humbled himself to the point, even the point of that painful death on the cross. And so Timothy thinks to himself and he says, if my feet are sore and bleeding after this trip, well, that'll just make me more like my Savior, whose feet were nailed to the cross. What a privilege it is that I get to serve my Lord in this way. As someone else said, how on earth can anyone be arrogant when standing beside the cross. So that's the mind that Timothy had. Do we have a heart for the church in the same way? Are we willing to love and, and to serve and to sacrifice and give ourselves completely in all humility to seek the church's interests and the interests of Christ? Those two go together. So we see humility must look like seeking the interests of Christ and of his church. Uh, but that's not all that we see here in this passage uh, we can seek those interests, and we, we've seen this, and maybe you've experienced it, where, where people can be uh, trying and seeking to serve uh, in these ways, but uh, in, in prideful and in unhelpful ways. Uh, we can have good intentions and, uh, and, and be sincere, uh, but we must also have humility to learn and to grow and to be shaped uh, by the gospel. And that brings us to the second point we see, that humility is fueled by the gospel. The second thing we find in Timothy's example is that humility looks like proven fidelity to the gospel of Christ. Timothy would not be the indispensable and beloved child of the faith to Paul if he was not humbly reliant upon and a student of the word of God and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul describes him in verse 22. He says, but you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. The service of the gospel was the proving ground for Timothy's worth. And he proved himself worthy of the task in every way. Timothy was humble enough to recognize that what the church needed was not anything special. The church didn't need anything unique within Timothy, any, any uh, anything special that Timothy brought to the table in and of himself. What they needed was the gospel. What they needed was him to be a student of the gospel and to preach the gospel and to be faithful in his own life and in his own walk, him himself to be worthy of, of, of living worthy of the gospel. That's what they needed. The humility that loves the church and considers others more important is the humility that will always point people back to Jesus. And so that's how the gospel it helps to fuel our humility. That, that's what Paul wants them to see when disagreements arise in the church. And we'll, we'll see how there was one sharp disagreement that was arising in this church here in Philippi. We'll see that in chapter 4. When these disagreements arise or when there's problems or, or where there's contentions, when we're being tempted to consider ourselves and our own interests over the interests of others, we need to look back to Christ's example. And Timothy is a great example who himself points us back to Christ. When we consider Christ and his gospel, that will fuel our humility. Uh, Pastor Gavin Ortland, he, he just wrote this really 
excellent short little book on humility. It's called Humility. And uh, it, it's so helpful. And he, he's talking about how the gospel, how it, it reshapes, it, it reorients, it, it, it fuels our, our desire. It, it brings us from pride. It directs us away from pride and brings us back to true humility. Uh, because it's so easy for us to think that we're doing okay. It's easier for us to, to forget Christ. It's easier for us to consider ourselves in comparison to one another and measure ourselves by that standard. And when we do that, we, we're not so bad. And we might even take pride in, in how humble we are. But Gavin writes, he says, the gospel cures us of this way of thinking because it teaches us to measure our pride by the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the, the measuring line. The cross is what always should shape our thinking. We need to be reminded of the gospel and the cross of Christ. The height from which Christ descended when he humbled himself as our, our chief model, as our supreme example. And then, knowing what he has done, we can rest easy and rest secure, knowing that we belong to him. And that's the most important thing in life, is to know that we belong to God, to know that we are his. If we belong to God, if he's our heavenly father, if we're able to pray to him as a father, knowing that we're a son and a daughter, then nothing else... It truly matters. Nothing else is of significance or of any kind of eternal consequence when that truth is secure. Not what others think, not the judgment of, of any bosses or coworkers or any, any students in your class. None, none of that stuff matters. And that means that we can let others take the spotlight. And that means that we can let go of grudges. And that means uh, that we... Uh, uh, can let others think whatever they would want to think about us because the only person that really matters in that equation, the only, the only uh, thing that matters is what God thinks of us. It's his opinion that truly matters, and, and we know what his opinion of us is. You're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. That promise that was given, the voice from heaven declared to Jesus in his baptism. Jesus was standing in our place in that baptism. And so maybe you need to believe that this morning. That the Father delights in you because you're in his Son, Jesus Christ. When our humility is fueled by the gospel like it was for Timothy, we won't give much attention to these other issues because we'll be too preoccupied with how much we love Jesus and preoccupied with what he has done and how he has saved us and, and how we can love his church and love him back in, in response. And this is another thing that's so closely related to this, and, 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 and that is how this humility relates to the church. We've, we've talked about this already. Um, but another result of, of true humility within the church is that we don't try to be fancy. Rather, humility means that we rely upon the gospel and that we trust in the power of God and in his word to accomplish what God promises to do. But we see the opposite of this quite a lot. Our desire is always to come up with the next big thing or to have the, the new uh, shiny systems or the new programs or, or different uh, methods for church growth and church planning and, and all of these things. And I, I was reminded of this um, 
uh, in a, a somewhat recent New York Times article, and I'm not saying I, I'm a New York Times avid reader by any means, so don't, don't think any less of me. Well, now I am not listening to my own sermon. It doesn't matter what you guys think of me. But this New York Times article, I think, illustrates this point perfectly. Uh, the headline, they ran this headline that said, horse troughs, hot tubs, and hashtags, baptism is getting wild. And in the article, it highlighted several different pastors and churches around the country who are changing up the way that they uh, do baptism. And uh, it quoted from one pastor who was saying that the performance of the age-old Christian ritual, uh, doing this in a, a new and more informal style, uh, quote, uh, conveys that this isn't your grandmother's church. Now, there's so much that I hate about that quote. <laughs> Because if you're in a church where your grandmother doesn't feel welcome, that's not a church you want to be in, first of all. But there's so much behind all of this. But you can hear that impulse behind that sta- a statement like that, right? This kind of pride. Uh, pride in oneself and a lack of faith in the, in the power of God to work through his ordained means of grace that, that he's given to his church. And so we, we seek after the new. We, we don't trust that God will continue to work through his, the preaching of the word or through the sacrament. Uh, but we need new ways to baptize. We need, we need new ways uh, to do the Lord's Supper. We need to rethink everything because God won't bless us the way that he used to do it. And that's a foolish way to think about it. Where, where's the humility in that way of thinking? Where's the recognition that all we have is right here in God's word? That we have nothing apart from this book. We have, we have nothing to offer the world except Jesus and him crucified. That's all we have. And now I say this, uh, and I'm preaching to myself because this is a concern, and I, I think about this from time to time, and I need to provide some caveats here. What, I, what I'm saying is I don't, I don't mean to say that we need to have some kind of strict rigidness to the past. I'm also not saying that everything new is, is immediately and therefore bad. But what I mean is, is everything we do, every, in everything, every decision we made uh, make needs to uh, revolve around this question. And we need to ask ourselves, Will this serve the mission of the church in proclaiming the gospel? Will this song or will this sermon series or a new website or a new giving platform or whatever these things might be, are they going to aid the mission of the church, which is to proclaim the gospel and minister to God's people? Or will it just be something of self-service, a means in and of itself, a way to, to glorify ourselves or to make much of our own name? That's the question. And that is why even we in the church, we need to hear the gospel regular, regularly. The gospel isn't just for the unbeliever, but it's, it's for the believer. It's for, for everyone. We all need to be reminded of our need for Christ. And that was Timothy's proven track record. He understood his need and he put his hope in Christ, his Savior, and that empowered him, empowered everything else he did in his life and in his ministry. It was fueled by the gospel. That was his only desire, was to make much of the name of Christ. So we must not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, especially when it comes to the life of the church and, and to how we, how, we worship, uh, how, how we worship God. We, we have simple worship. We don't try to be extravagant. We try to do things well in, in order to bring glory to God, but we must remember that we have simple worship because the majesty is to be found in God alone. 
We're not trying to be smarter than God. We're not trying to, to help God out. God, this is, this is a great start. We'll take it from here. That's not what we're trying to do. But instead, we do what God has commanded us to do. The, these ordinary means of grace, of, of word, sacrament, and prayer. These are the things that God has given us. He's given us his word. God speaks to us through his word. And then we're able to speak back to God with his word in our prayers and our, our praise, even in this preaching. The only, the only good thing this, this sermon is doing is o- only when it's in accordance with God's word. Anything else I might say will have no benefit at all. All we have is the gospel. All we have is God's word. But the wonderful thing is that we're not lacking anything. The gospel is all that we'll ever need because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And God delights when his people gather in humility, seeking Christ and seeking the the welfare of his church in a humble reliance upon the power that is outside of them as found in the objective truth of the gospel message. And that leads us then to the last thing that we see. And that is that humility, humility is a complete reliance upon Christ himself in everything. Humility is a complete reliance upon Christ. And we see this in the the two bookends of this passage. So look back there with me. Verse 19, Paul begins this passage. He says, I hope in the Lord, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. And then in verse 24, he says, And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I hope in the Lord and I trust in the Lord. He is sending Timothy to them and in his own coming uh, to them, Paul understands that it's, at the end of the day, not left up to him or his own power. Paul understands that we're not to be like those boastful people that James warns us about in his letter. A wonderful passage, a, a convicting passage, James chapter 4, where he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow uh, we will go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and we'll trade and we'll make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? James asks. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. That's the humility that the Christian ought to have. We ought to understand that it's the Lord who directs us. We need to put our hope and our trust in the Lord and never hold our own plans with such tight of a fist. So Paul wishes and he, he trusts that the Lord will provide the way for him to see the Philippians again. It, it's, it's good that he's making these plans. It's good for us to make plans. But he understands that if, if it does not work out the way he hopes, the way he intends, if the Lord chooses martyrdom for Paul instead of uh, future gospel ministry, Paul's ready for that as well. He understands that to live is Christ and to die is gain and for him to depart and be with Christ is far better for him. Regardless of his plans and what lies ahead of him in the future, he's trusting in the Lord. And this is the kind of humility we must have as well. I love how one pastor, he, he puts it this way. He, he says that Christ has the sovereign right and the infinite wisdom to revise his servant's best laid plans. I love that. 
Christ, he's our Lord. He has the sovereign right and the infinite wisdom to revise our best laid plans. Think of, of uh, our time in Richmond where Jess and I were planning. We had, we had some wonderful plans. <laughs> and I, I'm a huge planner. And uh, I'm too embarrassed to go back, but there is a document somewhere saved on my computer from maybe six, seven years ago. It's like five-year plan. I had everything planned out. I'm too scared to go back and just to see how, how foolish I was. But even when we were in Richmond, before we were called here and we had all these plans laid out, and even as we began this pastoral search process, we were going through this, and I, I told Jess, like, oh, don't worry, this is going to take six, if it takes six months, that'll be quick. It might take a whole year for them to, to finish this process. So, so we, have plenty, <laughs> we have plenty of time left in Richmond. And then a month and a half later, we were... <laughs> <laughs> getting ready to move. We need to approach our lives with that kind of humility, trusting that the Lord is going to direct us, knowing that, that he not only has the right to change our plans, but he has the infinite wisdom to do it well. Even when we can't see the big picture, we can't see the full picture, God, God sees the full picture. And we need to be humble and trust in him. That is the example of humility that Paul, and, and especially Paul, Paul's protege, his, Timothy, is. He's, he's putting him forward. That's what Timothy is demonstrating for us in this passage. It's a humility that considers the needs of Christ and his church always above our own. It's a humility that is fully dependent upon the power of the gospel. And it's a humility that compels us to put our trust in Christ at all times. That is the example that's put before us this morning. And that's our, our call to action and to go and do likewise. But th- this is the, par- the paradoxical nature of, of the Christian life. That the more we let go of ourselves, the more full we become. The more full of joy we become. The, the more humble we are, the more joyful we are. The more we lose ourselves, the more we find ourselves. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, Jesus says. He says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And that's not a promise for material gain. but It's a, it's a promise that the more we let go of ourselves, God's going to work in our lives and change our desires and our affections to match more and make it more aligned with his will and what he delights in. And that's where we'll find joy. So consider the example of Timothy, and most of all, Consider the example that Timothy points us to, the example of Christ, and humbly, let us humbly seek after him. Let's pray to him now. Lord Jesus, you did not account, you did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be selfishly held onto and used for personal gain, but you humbly and you willingly took on human flesh and you became one of us so that you might save us. If this great act of humility is what you have done and modeled for us, how can we not also strive to be humble ourselves? Help us to do that, Lord. May the good news of the gospel always remind us of who you are and what you have done for us. May you free us from the pride and vanity that would seek anything apart from the love that you have freely given to us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name.
Amen.